got you, got you. All right, we're going to be Daniel 8, maybe in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9 tonight. We're going to back up Daniel. We, we made it through, gosh, I think almost to verse 19. But we're going to back up to verse 15, take a little bit more, uh, little bit more time with it as we uh, take a look. We've, we've discussed the vision. If you remember, the vision is a vision of a ram and a goat. And we discussed the concept that the ram and the goat is a picture uh, or uh, illustration of the next two kingdoms coming on Daniel's uh, statue. Remember the head of gold is Babylon, chest, Medo-Persians, belly is Greece. Then we still have legs of iron, iron mixed with clay, feet, ten toes, all that stuff that's coming up a little bit later on. So as we look at it, Daniel has a vision. This vision takes place uh, uh, prior to Belshazzar. This, is, this vision takes place before the writing on the wall. Okay, everybody with me? So before the writing of the wall happened, Daniel saw this vision. And uh, um, he sees this vision about how these kingdoms are going to be shifting. In verse 15, after, after the view, after he's seen them, after he's talked a little bit about what's going on, it says in verse 15, Then when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So Gabriel, one of three angels that are named in the Bible. So uh, we see Gabriel here being told, being instructed... Uh, I believe by Jesus, being instructed to make Daniel to know, hey, help him understand. So last week we talked about all this stuff, and I said, now if you just hang on, the Bible's going to tell us what it all means. So before we think I'm running off uh, with some crazy ideas, if we continue to look, it says in verse 17, so he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, I want you to recognize all the, I don't know if I want to say all the time, often when we come to prophecy in the scripture, this is how it's going to look. You're going to have prophecy laid out and you're going to have a view probably within a couple hundred years or sometimes it's right then, but, but oftentimes you're within a couple hundred years of what we would call a near fulfillment. But there are specific prophecies where Daniel says, this is a shadow. I'm describing something that's about to happen that is a shadow of the end. So it means there are parts that we're going to be able to understand about the end of days by understanding what happened in this vision. And so, and this is what's troubled Daniel. Daniel's trying to put all the pieces together and what he's seen and what does this mean for his people and what's going on with Israel? And so he, he, he's a bit freaked out by an angel. That happens every time we come to the Bible, right? Every time. Now, sometimes people want to point to this and say, well, he's offering worship, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say he fell down to worship the angel. It just says he did what? Yeah, he just fell down. Whoa, uh, you're, you're, you're a little trippy. And it described him as a man. 
I want us to realize when we come into the Bible and we discuss in the Bible the, the pictures the Bible gives us, the descriptions of angels, the majority of the description of angels come from what we call uh, cherubim and seraphim, which actually are the same word, just two different languages. They both mean throne guardian. Those are the angels that are described that are always around the throne of God who never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You guys with me? When, when uh, Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his throne, the, his throne filled the temple. And Isaiah sees God, and what he sees there, cherubim and seraphim, the angel that touches him with the coal. Uh, Ezekiel, when he has his vision of the throne of God being carried by the four angels. You remember from Ezekiel, same thing. It is, uh, what do we know about those angels? Four faces. That's a little weird, right? Four faces. They never have to turn. They never have to turn their head. They don't change direction by turning. They just start going that direction. Uh, they have six wings. They have... They, the, so when the Bible describes them, when we look at it, the cherubim and the seraphim are synonymous with the living creatures. Remember, the, you'll hear the phrase as we study other prophetic scriptures about the living creatures. These are the throne guardians that are nearest to Jesus Christ, but they're not the angels that have been named. So then when we start talking about the named angels, we say, we have an idea what they look like. You know, maybe little fat cherubs. Or maybe we think they look like a big yoked out dude with two wings or butterfly wings on the back. I don't know. All I know is every time somebody saw one of them, they say he looks like a man and then they freak out. So there's something about him that's a bit wild. But we know you got to understand the writer of Hebrews. What did he tell us? He said, be careful to entertain strangers. Why? So if an angel always looked at you with four faces and six wings and all of that, it'd be kind of hard to mistake that for your neighbor, right? Right? So the Bible describes angels as ministering spirits. They, they ministered to Christ. They ministered to Paul. They ministered to you and I. And, and so when, often when they're described, they're described just looking like a man. So... When we look, this is what's happening here with Daniel. He sees a man, and the man he sees, I believe, is Jesus Christ, is telling Gabriel, hey, Gabriel, go tell him what the dream means. And then Gabriel comes over to tell him, and he's kind of overwhelmed, so he falls on his face, just like any of us would be in some, some type of heavenly vision like that. And then he tells him, this, this that you've seen, verse 18, when he had spoken to me, he says, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me, and he made me to stand up, and he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the indignation. So he's going to tell them what's going to happen in the latter end of the indignation. One of the, one of the unique things about Daniel is Daniel prophesies about what's going to happen during the 400 silent years. Nobody else does that. The rest of them will prophesy around their time, right, that they're in. And they may prophesy about the end. But, but Daniel's the only one who prophesies about the latter days of the indignation. 
the time when God wasn't talking to the children of Israel for 400 years. You remember? He didn't talk to the children of Israel for 400 years and then appeared on the sign the first prophet in 400 years. What was his name? John the Baptist. And what was his message? Repent and prepare yourself for Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So that way there's no confusion, right? There have been no prophets. Now the next prophet, he's telling us all about Jesus. And Daniel's going to point to that as well in the next, very next chapter, Daniel chapter 9. So he says, I want you to understand what's going to happen at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So he's saying, look, at the, at the latter time of the indignation, the time of the Gentiles, we've, we see it in the book of, of Daniel, right? You guys remember how Daniel was divided by language? So we had, we had the, the language division, which speaks to us. These, these first six chapters, these are talking about Gentile kings and how God has authority over the Gentile kings. And he has a plan and a purpose for the kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of men are all passing away. You guys remember the statue, one kingdom to another to another until the kingdom of God comes. And so he's laying out for him this, uh, this picture of the, the time of the Gentiles, which they're going to call the time of indignation, which happened at the beginning of the exile until Jesus comes. So at the beginning of the exile... The exile to Babylon, there's not an autonomous nation of Israel until like 1948. They didn't rule themselves. When Jesus came, who was ruling Israel? The Romans. Before them, who was ruling Israel? The Greeks. Before them, who was ruling Israel? The Medo-Persians. Before them, who was ruling Israel? Babylon. You have that picture of the statue showing these four kingdoms. And it's in that time when we're, we'll, we'll see it more when we talk about Daniel chapter 9 and the time of the Romans. When the rock strikes the feet to the kingdoms of men. It's, that, it's during that period of the fourth kingdom. During the time of Romans. So the Lord is declaring through Daniel, Messiah is going to come when the fourth kingdom comes. And he describes to Daniel, here's what the next two look like. But as he's describing them, you'll remember he talked about a little horn. Everybody remember? He talked about a little horn, and I told you about, for the first time, about Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of the little horn in the time of the end. So he says, I'm going to tell you about the things in the latter time of the indignation, toward the end of the Greek rule, Daniel will be in heaven. But he's, he's letting those who read Daniel know at the latter time, the indignation, at the end of the Greeks, there's going to be another little horn. And that little horn is going to be a picture of the little horn at the end. He, Antiochus, is a picture of Antichrist. When we look at, when we look at Antiochus, we see, we're going to see a lot of similarities. We'll talk about the, some of them uh, tonight. So he begins to tell the interpretation. Look at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So the Bible told us who it was, right? Who's the ram? Medo-Persians. Who's the second kingdom uh, in the dream of, uh, that, that Nebuchadnezzar had? It's the Medo-Persians. The Bible, what, was the, what about the second beast in Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel saw the visions from God's perspective of the kingdoms of men all as beasts? 
The second beast, the bear higher on one side than the other, the ram higher on one side than the other. Sounds familiar, right? The Medo-Persian Empire, the second empire that's going to come. And the goat is who? The king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. First king of Greece that conquered the world. Come on, we all know who it is, right? Alexander the Great. It's interesting. We're going we're gonna to talk a lot more about this when we get to chapter 11. And I'll try not to run too far down rabbit trails. But when we look at this king, Alexander, there is a legend uh, during the 400 silent years that when Alexander was conquering the world, he came outside of Jerusalem on his route, and the priests met him uh, outside of the city, and handed him, this is a scroll, I think, uh, I think, um, oh, what's the guy who does the histories? Uh, Josephus, I think Josephus talks about it. But uh, anyways, they go out and they hand him a scroll of Daniel. And they say to Alexander, our God said that you were coming. And so when Daniel read that, he didn't conquer Jerusalem. Uh, it was still his, nobody was fighting but he didn't trample it. He didn't destroy it. He just kept going on his way, continuing on. So it's a legend. It's not in the Bible, but sure would be an interesting cap to the story, right? That It'd be wild, wouldn't it, to be Alexander and then read a scripture that says, this is the king of Greece that's going to conquer the whole world. Oh, cool. Look at that. I made, I made it in the Bible. So, except he called you a goat. So I don't know if that make him happy or not. Okay, and then it says, verse 22, As for the horn that was broken, in its place four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with its power. So Alexander's the, the peak of power. Remember I told you last time he had two sons, but his two sons got killed, because that's what happens in a power vacuum. Your, your little ones don't get to sit on the throne. Somebody else wants juice, wants the power. So the four generals take power. Four horns come up out of the one horn. The, the, the kingdom of Greece was divided into four. And uh, we talked about those four kings. If you remember uh, the last time that we were here, let's see if I have it. I think I have it right here. Eventually I'll have it. Um, yeah, somewhere in my 50 pages. So come up to me afterwards, I'll tell you their names. The two important ones are at the end, Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are going to be the king of the south and the king of the north in Daniel chapter 11. That describes all the battles that Antiochus is going to have over Jerusalem. All right, so he goes on and says, now, verse 23, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face... One who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who were with the saints. Now, when Daniel's talking about the saints, who's he talking about? He's got to be talking about Israel, right? There is no church. So he's got to be talking about the nation, right? So he will destroy the people who are the saints. And by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, 
he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So this is a description of both Antiochus, that we're going to see at the end of the Greek period. You see, when Antiochus is... When Antiochus is going against Israel over and over again, conquering Jerusalem, you guys have heard the stories. He's going to slaughter a pig in the temple. He's going to declare himself God, manifest in the flesh. That's what he does. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes means. His, his, the middle part of his title would be Antiochus Theos Epiphanes. God manifest in the flesh. Antiochus. He, he's... Claiming himself to be absolute deity. But it also is a picture of that final king. That final kingdom that will be ruling at the time when Christ returns. The last king. Now I know, here's maybe something to, to chew on a little bit. I know we all kind of trip out when people talk about one world governments, right? But you know the kingdom of Jesus is a one world government. It's all about who the one world government is following, right? When we look in the book of Genesis, Genesis, what is it, chapter 11, the, the um, Tower of Babel, we see all mankind gathered together in one effort in rebellion against God. And we don't see all mankind gathered together under one ruler again until the end. So he confuses the language, scatters the nations, right? Because man's heart is evil continually and man just wants to rebel. And that man united together uh, has a tendency to unite in its rebellion against God. If you don't think that's true, read Ezekiel 38, read Revelation 19, read Revelation 20. Even after the kingdom of Christ, right? The Bible says Satan is loosed for a season, and what happens? Mankind gathers together in rebellion against God. So, we know that the true King of kings, Lord of lords, that will unite all peoples in salvation is Jesus Christ. Everything else is a false Christ, a false Messiah, a false hope, a pseudo-Christ, or what the Bible calls Antichrist. That's why Paul says... There have been many antichrists, people who, who try to take the authority or position of Jesus Christ. But there is one guy we're thinking of in the end, right, that unites all the kingdoms of earth in rebellion against God. And these are the, these are the descriptions that we see. Listen, here are some of the ones that describe uh, Antiochus and also the Antichrist. Uh, we had in verse 9, uh, Antiochus and Antichrist are both symbolized by horns. They were little or small at the beginning, representing that both kings as little horns uh, supports the idea that these are each pictures of one another. Antiochus was stern-faced. The Antichrist has an imposing look. Both of these are descriptions of cruelty and harshness. Has nothing to do with what he looks like. It has everything to do with how he looks. He looks like someone who's cruel and harsh. 
Antiochus was a master of intrigue, a solver of riddles. And the brilliance of the Antichrist is suggested by the eyes of the horn. Chapter 7, verse 8, and chapter 7, verse 20. The ability to offer seemingly correct solutions to the world's problems may be one factor that will catapult the Antichrist to power. Well, it's not like the world has any problems right now, right? Do you ever look at all the chaos in the world and say, what would they do to the dude who was able to stand up and solve it all? Everybody would want to follow him, no? Everybody would want to follow him. They want to, they want, they'd want to see what's going on. Check this guy out. So he goes on. Antiochus uh, had great power. The Antichrist will have greater power. Um, and the scripture says it's not his own power for each of them. It wasn't their own power. And the Bible tells us who elevates kings and gives authority to men to rule. Well, God gives that authority, right? God gives that authority. Well, Antiochus is not accomplishing this on his own power any more than Nebuchadnezzar did. But there's also demonic power that they possess, right? We know that the Antichrist in the end of days is going to be, um, Satan is going to uh, inhabit him. He's going to move in, take up residence in the Antichrist. So, uh, so we see this picture of power uh, and control. Antiochus destroyed thousands. The Antichrist will do more. Now, when we look at this, you know, in the modern age... Uh, 20th century, people, there have been, we always throw Hitler out like he was the, the you know, king slaughterer of people. He, he's a tiny player. He's not that big. Stalin, infinitely more. Mao Zedong, infinitely more than that. Millions upon millions upon millions upon millions have been killed and slaughtered in the 20th century by wicked uh, rulers, and so you see this picture of of Antichrist. He will be a destroyer of lives. Uh, Antiochus prospered for a short while, and so will the Antichrist, right? But he's, his days are numbered, right? Tribulation period lasts how long? That's short reign, right? That's short reign. Uh, Antiochus persecuted the saints, and Antichrist will oppress the believers. So will it be possible in the tribulation period for someone to come to faith in Christ? I don't know how you can have a tribulation saint if that's not possible, right? Right? So there's, there, there has to be the, the opportunity for them to be saved. Now, it doesn't mean they're the church, uh, God can make the distinctions where he wants to make them, but already we have at least two, don't we? We have Israel and the church, both called saints, both saved by faith in uh, Messiah, in, uh, in the Christ, but distinct groups. John would say when he, was described, when he was describing the marriage feast, John the Baptist said, I- I'm like the best man. The church is the bride both are at the wedding right both are enjoying the kingdom both are together with christ so there there is probably some distinction that um that we'll see with those but salvation is possible during 
the tribulation. What's the, what's the one thing that stops salvation from being able to happen? What's the unforgivable sin in the tribulation period? Blasphemy of the Spirit, what would you do? You take what? Yeah, you take the mark. The Bible says, Revelation chapter 13, if you take the mark, that's it. Done. Finished. And so we're clear, there's no such thing as being able to take the mark accidentally. <clears throat> you can't accidentally do it. Oops, I slipped and I accidentally took the mark. Because you need to understand that the... the the earlier pictures are important so that we can understand the end. How did they, how did they accomplish the, the mark of the beast earlier? Well, in the Roman Empire, you took a pinch of incense and you declared Caesar was God. Why did Rome kill six million Christians? Because they said, no. This is a, it's an illustration the idea that I'm going to take a vaccine and I have the mark of the beast now, that's, it, that's not possible. The mark of the beast requires a denial of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and a proclamation of Antichrist as your Savior. That's an attitude of worship. Somehow it's wrapped in, right? The idea, bow the knee like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're going to bow down before the altar? What if it, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you don't do it? In the book of Revelation, they say, we'll cut off your head if you don't do it. So there's going to be an act of worship that is a part of this. So we see Antiochus and the Antichrist sharing these same attitudes. Antiochus was proud. He called himself Epiphanes, which means <coughs> God manifest, the, the enlightened one. And... Antichrist is going to stand in the holy place and declare himself to be God. How do I know there's another one coming? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. By the way, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 was written somewhere in the area of the 60s, ADs, uh, toward the end of Nero's reign, prior to Paul being put to death, long after Antiochus Epiphanes had his run. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, he describes to us the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which Jesus referred to in Matthew 24. So he says, when we see this man of sin standing where he ought not and declaring himself to be God, yeah, run. So Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It has to be something future to that event, right? He's saying that he's talking about the man of sin, the, the Antichrist, in the time of his coming. It would not come until there was a great falling away, a great apostasia. And then he looks forward. So we see a, 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 a illustration in Daniel describing this king of the end. That, um, that we've been looking at, that he describes here in this last part. And then he says, uh, Antiochus is not killed with human hands, and neither is the Antichrist. Antiochus, much like Herod, he is going to, uh, people will say he, he, he uh, dies by God's hand. In the, 
In the book of Maccabees, there's two books, first and second Maccabees. They are apocryphal historical books about the 400 silent years. They're not in the Bible. This is extra biblical books. In the book of Maccabees, first uh, Maccabees 6, it says, when, when the king heard this news, he was astounded and badly shaken, and he took to his bed. He became sick from disappointment. Because things had not turned out for him as he had planned. Now, he's, this is the king, Antiochus, mourning after the Maccabean revolt takes back Jerusalem. They re-cleanse the temple uh, in which place where they're able to get the lampstand to light for eight days, which brings about a holiday. You guys remember the holiday? Hanukkah, yeah, the festival of lights celebrated by Jesus Christ in John chapter 8. So we... We, uh, so he he's, gets depressed after that. He says he lays there many days because of deep disappointment continually gripped him, and he realized he was dying. So he called all his friends and said, Sleep has departed from my eyes. I am downhearted with, uh, with worry. I said to myself, To what distress I have come, and to what great flood I now am plunged. For I was kind and beloved in my power, but now I remember the wrong I did to Jerusalem. I seized its vessels of silver and gold, I destroyed the inhabitants of Judah without reason. I know that it is because of this that these misfortunes have come upon me. And then he passed. Now this is written by the victors. Keep that in mind. The Maccabeans write this as the words of Antiochus when he died. But I doubt they were there. The Maccabeans were in Jerusalem. But this is their record of what happened to King Antiochus. So... He died not in battle, not by human hands, not because of something that he lost. But ultimately, they're going to say he dies by the judgment of God for the things that he did uh, to the nation of Israel. So when we look at this description of the little horn in Daniel 7 and the description of the little horn in Daniel 8, I want you to understand there are differences here that help us understand the distinctions. Okay, the little horn of Daniel 7. The little horn of Daniel 7 is one of ten, or the eleventh horn. Ten toes, ten horns, and a little horn grew up among them and pulled out three. You guys tracking with me? The little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is one of four that take over the kingdom of Greece. The little horn in Daniel 7 rules for three and a half years. That sounds familiar, huh? But the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 rules for six years, four months. One is a picture of the other. They're not the same person. Does it make sense what we're talking about? It's not the same person, but the description is so that we will know they're both little horns. One is a picture of what that lasts. So oftentimes when we talk about the Antichrist, we line up the things that Antiochus did and we say, this is what he's going to do. This is the attitude he's going to have. This is how these things are going to play out. Okay, so that hopefully whets our appetite a little bit. We're going to pick that up again <laughs> in a couple of chapters. So then the book of Daniel moves from Daniel uh, 7 and 8, which were both previous to Belshazzar. Uh, and we'll just, we're just going to crack the door on Daniel chapter 9. We're not going very far. Three verses. That's all I'm doing. 
So we come into Daniel chapter 9, and he gives us a time frame. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by DeSanta Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So now this one's during Darius the Mede. Okay, this one is Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. You guys remember the story earlier. So it's during this time, uh, probably around 12 years after the vision in chapter 8. So he has the vision in chapter 8. You guys remember, he's, he doesn't really understand what's going on. In fact, if you remember the last, uh, the last verse, verse 27, it says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, and I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. The angel had told him, close up the book, seal it up. It's not for your time, Daniel. This is for many days from now. So, 12 years later, Daniel is going to pray. Now, we know Daniel prayed how many times a day? Did he, was that a regular habit of his? So, a regular habit of Daniel's was praying three times a day, all the time. That's how they got him thrown into the lion's den, right? When we look at Daniel chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, <coughs> excuse me, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So it's, it's going to be an interesting prophetic section, probably the most interesting prophetic section in the book of Daniel, because this is going to deal with the 70 years of captivity and 70 years of prophetic uh, of prophecy that is determined for the nation of Israel. So, uh, but how did Daniel figure out? He's figured out the 70 years are almost up. He's in his 80s. He probably went uh, in captivity when he was around 15. So, yeah, time's, time's up, right? He's come to the end. How did he figure it out? How does he know it's almost to the end? He was reading. What was he reading? The book of Jeremiah? How in the world did he get Jeremiah's stuff? I think you got to want to have it, don't you? You and I, we want the Bible. We just open up an app on our phone, push the thing. It, it takes about 30 seconds to download, and you can have 15 different languages, and you can have it read to you, and every possible translation that's there. It didn't work out that way for Daniel, right? Now, listen, Daniel was in Jerusalem when Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem. So it's highly likely that he brought with him the scrolls of prophecies that, Daniel, or that Jeremiah gave. But also, in the position that he had as number two among Nebuchadnezzar, it was, I would assume, possible and probable for him to receive the finished writings. Remember, Jeremiah wrote all his prophecies in a scroll. He gave it to the king, and the king burned it. You remember? The king burned it. He's like, oh, give me that. And he throws it in the fire, and Jeremiah says, don't worry, I, I have more. That's, that's not the only one. Daniel gets 
the word of the prophet Jeremiah. It says, he perceived from the books the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he is reading his Bible and praying. And what he reads in his Bible compels him to pray for his nation. And when Daniel prays for his nation, he's the only one recorded. If my people who are will humble themselves and pray, if they will repent, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their cry from heaven and I will heal their land. So here you have this laid out before us. So we're just going to look at these two scriptures in Jeremiah for this time, and then we'll uh, take a look at the prayer next week. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words I have uttered against it, everything written in the book which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations. What happened to Babylon? Is there still a Babylon today? Nope, that nation ended, and what nation took its place? Medo-Persian Empire, right? Just like the Lord is saying. Jeremiah 29 Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, here are the captives. Jeremiah 29, go unto Babylon, all chained up. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. You guys heard that before, right? I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you exile. Daniel read these, and it challenged him to pray. And Daniel's prayer to the nation is a big key to the return that happens from the place he saw in chapter 8. Susa, Nehemiah, is going to return with the exiles. Ezra and Nehemiah will go back and rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem so that it's ready for the return or for the first coming of the Christ 400 years later pretty wild how it all fits together, isn't it? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for this time we can study the prophetic word of Daniel. Uh, God, your word is so amazing. Daniel is so precise, so beautiful, so incredible. Lord, you tell us history before it happens. In 200 years before Cyrus, who is the the Mede who's going to conquer the Babylonian Empire. 200 years before he's born, Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 45, God declares 
through his voice to Isaiah the prophet, I am going to raise up a man named Cyrus to set my people free. In Daniel, hundreds of years before the events of these things that we look back on as history, the Lord told Daniel, here's what's coming. Here is what's going to happen. Here's how these things lay out. And the Lord tells them. Because he wants us to know he is the incomparable God. There is no one like me who can tell you the end from the beginning. The one who can tell us the end from the beginning is the sovereign Lord who is king of kings. Lord of lords. All of history is going to culminate in his return. The establishment of his kingdom. The praising of of his people enjoying forever the kingdom of God and uh, a new heaven and a new earth. And Lord, we're, we are just blown away by the beauty of prophecy. Lord, you said, Jesus told us in Ephesians chapter 4 that he gave gifts to the church. He gave prophets and apostles. Prophets and apostles. Here you go. These prophets that we're reading, that they don't get erased just because they were before Christ. These prophets told about Christ. They become the order and establishment for the Old Testament. And then he gave apostles, those New Testament leaders uh, of the disciples, followers of Christ, who were challenged by God to write the story of Jesus Christ. He gave the church gifts, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, the apostles and prophets have laid that foundation so that we can pick up that word that they have provided us and run with it. So that we can evangelize, tell the world Jesus has come, that he is our great God and Savior that we would turn from our sin and turn toward our Savior. Shepherds who will tend and feed a flock. Teachers who will teach a flock. This is God's gift to the church. Jesus' gift through the victory of his cross. And then he calls us, now go therefore. Make disciples in every nation. Teach them, baptize them, and know that I am with you even into the end of the age. And when the men, the disciples, who in the, that first, in that first generation who received the charge from Jesus, when they, when they were quaking in their boots and didn't know how to go forward and didn't know what to do, they gathered together as a body of believers and they prayed that God would fill them and empower them by his spirit to make them bold. Acts chapter 4, the Bible declares that the spirit of God moved through that building like a rushing wind. And he filled them with boldness. So that the leaders of that day would say, is it these who have turned the world upside down? And Lord, you have provided us everything that we need. 
I pray, Lord, that we would pick up the gifts you've given, that we would entrust ourselves to your word and the empowerment of your spirit, and we would move forward, be the men and women that you are calling us to be for this day, for this time, with our eyes lifted up, waiting for our great God and Savior Jesus Christ to return but with a heart willing to stay busy about the job he's given us until we see his face. So God, be glorified and magnified in this place and strengthen us as we go from here, fill us as we go from here, equip us every day more and more to know your word and to feel your strength. And God, be glorified in and through the things we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.